Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Jay Handy, your financial advisor through the art world. If you are an artist navigating your financial journey, but don't know a bond from a bronze, interest from impasto, stocks from stippling, then Jay Handy of Signal Point Asset Management is the guy for you. Jay is a unique blend of art and finance, holding both a degree from Harvard Business School and an MFA, and is here to talk you through both what to consider when making an investment to buy art and understanding how finance can support artistic passions, both for artists and collectors. Both art and finance are intimidating, but not when someone like Jay is in your back pocket. Learn more about Jay and SignalPoint at www.signalpointinvest.com team slash J handy. The link is also in the show notes and click on the little envelope next to his name to send him an email. And by Alta New, your one-stop shop for artist supplies. Paints, watercolors, colored pencils, markers, coloring books, paint palettes, brushes, basically everything Monet would pack to take with him to Giverny and also for his two kids to keep them occupied on the train ride. Alta New also provides resources for budding and experienced artists by way of Artistry by Alta New available on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok, aimed to spark creativity and help build skills by providing tutorials, ideas, and inspiration, and connecting you to a community of fellow creatives and giving you an opportunity to show off your shiny new art supplies. Go to www.altenew.com, that's A-L-T-E-N-E-W.com, and put in discount code TAMAR, 10% off to get 10% off your first purchase. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 64, Barbara Kruger's Untitled, Your Body is a Battleground, from 1989. Busloads of pro-choice activists are pulling out of Schenectady at this hour. About 1,500 people from this area will join voices with others who are converging on the nation's capital. Police expect about 90,000 to march on Washington in an effort to keep the Supreme Court from overturning its landmark decision, which legalized abortion in the U.S. It is 10.20. Moving in 40 minutes, minutes for our journey to adventure. <laughs> Washington, D.C. Here we come. Some people get very discouraged because they have been through these struggles before and they feel, why are we here again and again and again and standing for our rights? The last time I took a flight, I found myself mindlessly staring at the screen on the seat back in front of me. The commercials rolled past, as they do now, including one for a clear blue easy pregnancy test. It's one I've used myself in the past, more times, I will say, than the number of children I have. And watching this commercial, soundless, I saw a beautiful woman in her well-appointed bedroom get her results 
and collapsed joyously onto the bed, a face full of the purest sunshine. But we never see the results. And I had to raise my plastic cup of ginger ale to this brilliant marketing campaign. No matter what that pregnancy test said, she could be relieved and joyful. And no matter who is watching, we can project ourselves onto her. We've been there. We can relate to that feeling. And what does this say about the public conversation around the impossibly personal topic of pregnancy? The bottomless depths of joy or panic or grief, and above all, the unknown. Our futures, our bodies, ourselves. It's not something that can fit on a picket sign. Let's just get something out of the way. This is not an episode about abortion. Even the artwork we're looking at in this episode isn't really about abortion. And it's not about my politics, my values, my business. It's about conflict. It's about tension. It's about a stark divide, a positive and negative exposure of a woman's face, her exquisite lipstick and perfect eyebrow mirrored like a poster from a horror film, half angel, half demon, split down the middle and held together with red band-aids of text that reference a body we don't even see. And yes, this photographic silkscreen was created for a specific moment. The first time Roe versus Wade, the constitutional amendment that allowed for the federal legalization of abortions, was under significant attack in 1989. That is unambiguous recent history. But the image, the tension, the conflict, both external to this woman and maybe internal within her too, is timeless. It's an image that manages to tell a million stories in one story. It speaks with the succinct visual impact of a picket sign, but it's not a picket sign. It's not prescriptive. It's not the answer to something. It's rare to have art that can speak both to its moment and to every moment and feel just as prescient, just as potent each time. And that's what this episode is about. Of course, for something to be timeless, it has to feel like it's always addressing you, right now. Which, for Barbara Kruger, is kind of her thing. Her signature large-scale black-and-white images are overlaid with red text bars of pithy little phrases that smack you with Futura Bold or Helvetica Extra Bold, always using personal pronouns I and you that pin us to our spot, implicating us directly. After all, why should Uncle Sam get all the army recruits when he points the finger straight at you, that is, me? It's, again, a brilliant marketing strategy to break the fourth wall like that. This active, who, me? That forces you to engage. Think about it. Your body is a battleground. Wait, mine? My body? I mean, is anyone else's too? What's the battle over? Is this an accusation? A threat? 
quote, direct address has motored my work from the very beginning, Kruger has said. I like it because it cuts through the grease, end quote. And yet there is a very real difference between the directness of a Kruger statement and, say, the directness of a picket sign, or even of Uncle Sam. You know what Uncle Sam wants you to do when he's pointing that finger at you. You know what an activist is saying when she holds up a sign that says, my body, my choice. There's a clear ideological message being conveyed. But Kruger feels direct and indirect. Her phrases read like they're dripping with irony, but they're actually pretty openly earnest. She makes statements of fact. Your body is a battleground that we then use to, in her words, interrogate ourselves, question, quote, the systems that contain us. Of course, these systems and statements are directly bound up with her politics. The role of the patriarchal male gaze in art history in Your Gaze Hits the Side of My Face from 1981, or the role of capitalist consumerism in I Shop, Therefore I Am from 1987, or both in You Invest in the Divinity of the Masterpiece from 1982, and so on, from feminism to gender to celebrity. And it's a knife's edge that she's walking on here, managing to deliver statements that both probe and sear and yet don't overtly judge. I mean, judgment coming from art and any authority just alienates but broad statements of fact merely describe. They leave the judgment part to you. So in other words, this art isn't a picket sign so much as a mirror. And this mirror is not just being held up to the individual, but to society as a whole. Because her text is also agiprop, authoritative, sensationalist. She's critiquing politics and propaganda, the mainstream media and tabloid journalism, quote, in their native tongue, as critics have described. A headline can throw a punch, but she's ready to punch right back. Quote, I think I developed language skills to deal with threat, she said. It's the girl thing to do, you know, instead of pulling out a gun. Of course, she's not the first artist we've looked at who has integrated text and imagery, or who pulled metaphorical guns in a political firefight. I mean, different though their aims were, it wouldn't be wholly inappropriate to summon Roy Lichtenstein from episode 27, who was also uncannily good at finding meaning in generality, at pulling out the exact frame of a comic strip that tells any story the viewer wants to project. But let's go back even further all the way to episode three, the first time we ever dug into political art, by way of John Hartfield, the Weimar political master of photomontage. Between 1830 and 1838, Hartfield created more than 240 photomontages, which were published in the popular illustrated magazine AIZ, and which mostly criticized Nazism, fascism, and even took on Hitler directly through satire and subversion. And it's incredible satire, the kind that really gets into your soul, equal parts witty and deeply disturbing. And not for nothing, earned Hartfield the number five spot on the Gestapo's most wanted list. His famous Hurrah, die Butter ist alle, 
hooray, the butter is finished, is a prime example of his gift. A photo montage that depicts a family sitting around a dinner table, in a dining room with wallpaper emblazoned with swastikas and a framed photo of Hitler. It would be a perfectly homey nationalist scene, except that they're all eating a bicycle, while the baby gnaws on an axe and a dog licks an oversized nut and bolt. The title directly addresses both the food shortages the German population was experiencing under the first few years of Nazi rule, and a quote from a speech by Hermann Göring, who claimed that, quote, iron ore has made the Reich strong, while butter has made them fat. Now, to be clear, Barbara Kruger doesn't claim John Hartfield as inspiration, and has gotten a little spicy toward all the art historians, myself now included, who jump to compare them. But come on. Take the example of the hand that reaches towards you in Hartfield's famous communist poster, Five Fingers Has the Hand, which kind of feels like a direct inspiration for Kruger's subversive Descartian I shop, therefore I am, which is also overlaid over the same reaching hand. In fact, the intentional shallowness of Kruger's statement almost feels like it needs Hartfield for its punch to fully land. But no, Kruger says, no direct influence. Fine. When it comes to the overlay of text and images, she actually credits her style to her training as a graphic designer, rather than seeing herself as part of this long trajectory of political art. But I honestly feel like this sells her a bit short. There doesn't have to be a direct link to appreciate the kind of detached directness that Hartfield and Kruger share. The creation of space for you between the artwork and the world. You know what side the artist is on, sure, but you also need to do a little work, to understand the references, to decide which side you're on, instead of just being told what to think. In other words, and in the words of the cultural critics from Hartfield's generation, it's activism that is meant to wake you up, to engage, not demand that you blindly follow, having been bludgeoned comatose by someone else's ideology. But let's talk more about Kruger's evolution and influences, according to her. She was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1945, and grew up during the golden age of advertising. She studied art and design, first at the University of Syracuse and then at the Parsons School of Design, under Diane Arbus. Then she went to work as a page designer at Condé Nast, constructing layouts for spreads in Mademoiselle and House and Garden, and seeing firsthand the incredible power of image, photography, text, and their many permutations that both inspire and manufacture desire in its consumers. And like with almost every photographer we've looked at in the past, from Henrik Ross in the Lodge Ghetto, to Ansel Adams standing on his car, to Hiroshi Sugimoto in the back of his theaters, Barbara Kruger realized that, more than anything, Photography is manipulation. This was the founding principle of what became known as the Pictures Generation, a group of artists, which included Kruger, Cindy Sherman, Laurie Simmons, Richard Prince, and others, who in the mid-1970s found themselves awash in images from the day they were born. Media, film, television, ads, 
and who therefore decided to weather this roiling sea with both cool detachment and a desire to expose this medium that purported to tell some kind of objective truth. On the contrary, Laurie Simmons said, quote, I was excited by the idea that a photograph could lie. Simmons, who is now perhaps better known as Lena Dunham's mom, was a core member of this crew. In her words, less a photographer than an artist who used photography. Her piece, Woman Kitchen Sitting on Sink from 1976, is a prime example of intentionally pointing out artifice, both in its technique and its subject matter. It's a photograph of a doll playfully and unsettlingly arranged in a dollhouse scene. In her retelling, Simmons was a young art school graduate looking for freelance commercial photography work. And in order to get a job working for a toy company catalog, she began photographing dollhouse furniture. The job never panned out, but she was smitten with the artistic possibilities. And here we see a classic 1950s housewife sitting on a sink, engaged in the performance of her domestic duties. But the authenticity of the scene can't help be questioned given how artificial it all is. This is a doll, after all. It's beautiful and perfect in the way that anything poured into a mold can be. And this isn't even a kitchen, it's a playset. It's pure simulation. The stereotype of elegant 1950s femininity, like the character of June Cleaver, is both venerated and subverted. And the artificiality highlights how damaging this kind of fiction could be to the women conscripted into making it real. As Simmons wrote, quote, I was simply trying to recreate a feeling, a mood, a sense of the 50s that I knew was both beautiful and lethal at the same time, end quote. This sense of photographic fiction is also seen in the work of Cindy Sherman. Sherman was a fellow member of the loosely gathered pictures generation and a good friend of Simmons and is known almost exclusively for role-playing in her art. She is almost always her own subject, but like with Carrie Mae Weems in episode 50, these images of herself are never self-portraits. Instead, she creates personas. She dresses up in various costumes, wigs, prosthetics, and disappears into these transformations so seamlessly, you'd be forgiven for not really being able to recall what Cindy Sherman actually looks like. Take, for example, her series of untitled film stills from 1977 to 1980. The naive waif stares apprehensively yet defiantly into middle distance, surrounded by skyscrapers. You know exactly who she is, the bus from nowhere she just got off of, the love story that will follow, the kiss at the top of the Empire State Building that will take us into the credits. But there is no movie. Her character exists as though on a trading card, with all the narrative implied but unrealized. And again, it calls to mind the isolated comic book frames of Liechtenstein, the idea that a pop culture frame in isolation, if properly chosen, can be representative of everything that comes before and after that frame. And that we, as the audience, can actually fill it all in on our own. And it begs the question, particularly with Sherman's characters, how we're going to do that. 
what narrative journeys have her women been on? Where are they going? And how have we been shaped by larger societal forces to consider ourselves empowered with the ability to tell her story? Like with Simmons Dolls, there's a remarkable amount of truth about ourselves that we can glean from this intentional fiction that is now reflected back to us. And all of this is just a taste of the work that was being created in the 70s and 80s, and the tension that it both spoke to and exploited, when Barbara Kruger created this image of a woman's face divided down the middle for the Women's March on Washington in 1989. It was distributed originally as a flyer with a clear activist message, pushing back against the anti-abortion legislation that was being bandied about by the Supreme Court. And it's interesting to take this flyer, which has all the logistical and ideological information about the march overlaid on this divided face, not to mention a very clear statement of Kruger's politics, and compare it to the image that we've been looking at this whole time, which doesn't have any of that information. It just says your body is a battleground. A lot of people go into a conversation about Kruger and this image knowing what it's referencing, namely the abortion debate. But imagine if you didn't. What if it was just about the image itself, this face, half beautiful, half grotesque, and this direct statement of fact, your body is a battleground. It could be about abortion or childbirth or infertility, or misogyny, or diet culture, or cancer. All beautiful and lethal at the same time. A million stories in one story. Barbara Kruger is 78 now still creating work that, in her words, quote, conjoins the seduction of wishful thinking with the criticality of knowing better. She lives in L.A., and her more recent work has that unmistakable L.A. tinge of pop culture, of the advertising that she bit her teeth on, and of surface. But acknowledging the surface, she would be the first to tell you, is how to get to the depth to her trademark satire that gets to your soul, always speaking to something larger. For example, her 2010 cover of W Magazine, featuring a nude Kim Kardashian covered only by the red stripes of text that read, it's all about me, I mean you, I mean me, might just be one of the most brilliant and succinct descriptions of Kardashianism and the rich soil from which it grew ever committed to glossy paper. And, not a little bit ironically, Kruger's style has even reached a whole new generation of consumers by way of the logo for the streetwear brand Supreme, whose designer admitted to blatantly cribbing her work, and whom Kruger never really pushed back against until she was dragged into a lawsuit between Supreme and another retailer. It's like she seemed fine taking a breather, letting the politics of her message speak to another era. And then 2022 happened. 
Good morning. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. The justices handing down the highly anticipated ruling on abortion. The justices saying we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. I the opinion uh, really couldn't be more clear. I mean, this court believes that Roe versus Wade was basically just made up. It was wrong from the beginning. Just hours after the court overturned the landmark Roe versus Wade decision, taking away what was regarded as a fundamental right. Right now, new laws banning abortion are taking effect. Roe was challenged again, this time by a majority conservative court, and was, as we all know, overturned. And Kruger sprang back into action. Your Body is a Battleground was repurposed, featured on the cover of New York Magazine in May, before the official ruling in June, but after the leaked opinion, when the writing was on the wall. The text from the original image was replaced with a far more context-specific, but no less ambiguous, quote, who becomes a murderer in post-Roe America, with the word murderer very intentionally in quotes. And it's clear that age and success has not dimmed Kruger's brilliance. In fact, it's sharpened it. Because no one would ever question New York Magazine's allegiance here, or the politics of its staffers, or of Kruger. And yet it's a perfectly phrased and even charitable question. It's aimed at everyone engaged in the conflict, and yet no one side in particular a direct interrogation of those who believe that abortion is murder, that banning it is murder, and, in this debate, how compassion has many meanings but is never free of consequences. And at the end of the day, we know that it's a great question and a meaningful contribution to productive political art because it's a terrible picket sign. Imagine putting this on a picket sign. Imagine chanting it. Who becomes a murderer in post-Roe America? It doesn't work. It's not a shot fired. It's simply a question that cuts through the grease, that mirrors back our own beliefs, that demands we do a little work. And it's a question that wakes us up, all of us, to the complexities, to the unavoidable tensions, both external and internal, of caring so deeply about our bodies, ourselves, our children, our unknown futures, that we're willing to do very public battle over an impossibly personal issue. It wakes us up to our opponents, so often our fellow women, and to how deeply they share the depth of our conviction. And maybe it helps us meet in the middle of this divided line maybe somewhere around the brow line, and astounded at how deeply we all relate to that conviction, that feeling, and just maybe even to each other. If any of you know the words, I hope you'll sing them along with me. Too big to ignore 
Special thanks to Debbie Bleacher, and especially to the group of Patreon patrons for the great conversation we had last week about this episode, and who really helped it all come together. And you can join them at our monthly Zoom hang by supporting the show at $10 per episode and higher. It's fun and enlightening and really helps me write these episodes. I'd love to see you there. Sign up or up your pledge at patreon.com slash for more information about the show, past episodes, and all the images, go to thelonelypalette.com, where you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, which features articles from around the art world horn, online exhibitions, lots of art puns, and more. And also learn about commissioning episodes for your institution, booking me for a virtual online museum tour, or buying yourself some super cute merch. Again, all that and more is at thelonelypalette.com. And you can also leave us a hopefully kind reading and review at Apple Podcasts. And for a good time, follow us on Instagram, at The Lonely Palette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of idea-driven, mind-expanding podcasts. And I wanted to draw your attention not just to an episode, but a whole limited series that's just been released by Ministry of Ideas. It's called Illuminations. And through interviews and stories drawn from a range of cultures, this series explores the friendship, you heard that word right, between religion and science. How the scientific revolution was catalyzed by a divine quest. Why the Dalai Lama loves quantum mechanics. Listen at ministryofideas.org illuminations or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>